It's good to be with you. Thank you for having me. I've uh, felt uh, your hospitality and kindness in great abundance thus far. Um, We're going to be looking at Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his second letter. So if you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 12, this is where we're going to take up the sacred scriptures this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 7 through 10, uh, but I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. I must go on boasting, though there's nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast except of my weakness. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I'd be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So to keep me from boasting or becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to harass me or to buffet me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ might rest upon me. For the sake of Christ... Then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. And thus far as the reading of sacred scripture, would you bow with me one last time in prayer? O Father in heaven, as we come before you, we ask that your Son would speak to us through his holy word and execute his office as our prophet from heaven and communicate his good word to us for the nourishing and building up of our souls. We pray, Lord God, that you would uh, feed us, O Lord Jesus Christ, as the good shepherd, feed us, each one, according to our need. Holy Spirit, come and make your habitation here within our minds and hearts. Dispel all darkness and carnality and give to us a knowledge of your word, a knowledge that leads to godliness and holy living. We pray that you would be at work in us and sanctify us by your holy truth. For we ask that these things be done in the name of Christ. And it's in his name that we ask that he might be glorified. Amen. Now we come this morning to a very familiar passage. A very familiar passage of the sacred scriptures. A passage that discloses to us something of the greatness of the visions and of the revelations that the Apostle Paul had experienced in the course of his life. The same Apostle 
who on the Damascus Road encountered the risen Lord himself in all his glory and heard his Lord speaking to him from heaven. And it was 14 years ago from the time that Paul had written this epistle, this letter, that he was taken up in the body or out of the body he did not know. Whether it was in body or in a vision, to the paradise in heaven which is above. But there he saw, he heard things so great that he could not express, couldn't put them into words. And yet it was on account of the greatness of the revelations and the exceeding abundance of the visions and the things that he had received that the Lord God gave to his apostle a thorn in the flesh. Many have tried to figure out just what this thorn in the flesh is. What is this thorn? Was it a bodily affliction? Uh, Was it um, a difficulty that he faced in his circumstances? Maybe it was an infirmity in his mind. Maybe it was uh, opposition he experienced in his apostolic ministry. But I would propose to you this morning that any such searching is vain. It's purposeless. Meaningless. For the apostle does not tell us exactly what that affliction was. And I believe that there is purposed ambiguity in this. A purposed ambiguity by the Holy Spirit. Because if Paul had said, the thorn in the flesh is this particular ailment, or the thorn in the flesh is this particular difficulty, then every one of us here this morning who doesn't experience that opposition, who hasn't experienced that particular bodily affliction, might be led to say, well, what does this text really have to do with me? Isn't this all quite irrelevant? And so we can perceive just how relevant this text is for us who are living in uh, the, first, uh, the 21st century, though this was written in the f- first century. Because there is um, an intention of the Lord in this ambiguity that we might see in the apostle's suffering our own suffering. That the thorn in the flesh isn't anything in particular but any kind of trial or occasion of great suffering. Anything that torments us. Anything that plagues us. Anything that causes us great pain. It's any kind of difficulty that you experience that does not easily go away. Something that lingers and continues. And this means that every believer here, at one time or another, at one place or another, can can sympathize with the Apostle Paul, can relate to this text of Holy Scripture. We can relate to the apostles' cries in great agony for the thorns that he experienced in the flesh. We see in Paul's want and need our own want and need. We can relate to Paul as he cries out to the Lord in distress. We can relate to him as he raised up prayers. Have you ever prayed in great distress? And yet those things for which you prayed weren't answered, or maybe better stated, or more accurately stated. Those things for which we prayed were not answered 
as we had desired or as we had wished. And we can understand this. We can sympathize. We know what it is to experience this as well. We have a common shared experience with the Apostle Paul. But why was this the case? Why was this so? Why did the apostle receive this thorn in the flesh? Well, Paul tells us it was to keep him from pride. The great apostle himself had to wrestle with this great evil that Calvin said was, quote, unquestionably the cause of man's ruin. And so it is the last vice with which we must contend for all other vices are connected with evil deeds. But this, that is pride, is to be dreaded in connection with the best of our actions. And furthermore, it so naturally clings to us and is so obstinate that it is, and so deeply rooted that it is extremely difficult to extirpate it, Calvin says. And see, the Lord sent the apostle this affliction, as he too sends us afflictions our way, that we might grow in holiness, that we might become more and more conformed to the image of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he might humble us and teach us to depend on Jesus in the midst of our afflictions, that we might know something more of the sufficiency of his grace, for every trial, and for every difficulty that we face. And so it's my intention this uh, afternoon to consider these verses under three headings. First, a plea for relief. Secondly, an answer from heaven. And third, a resolve to glorify Christ. A plea for relief an answer from heaven, and a resolve to glorify Christ. First, a plea for relief. Notice with me again in verse 7. He says, And lest I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. You see, this thorn in the flesh that was causing Paul such great agony, such great angst, and such great pain was not something that the apostle went looking for. It wasn't something that he sought out. It was something that came from without and, and came to him. Something from outside attacking him, so to speak. He describes it as a messenger of Satan to buffet me. Now, is that surprising? That he describes this trial or affliction as the messenger of Satan to harass him, to buffet him. Since it was, in fact, the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians who teaches us that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood. But what we do war with is the principalities and powers of this world. You see, Satan and his evil hosts are at work in this world, constantly seeking to destroy the sons of God. Satan is an adversary of the church of Jesus Christ, and he will employ every weapon. He will use every device that he can conceive of, that he can get his hands upon. To overcome the people of God. To destroy the church. And as it was in the beginning, and even so it still is now, Satan's purpose to murder those who bear the image of God. And so we learn from the Apostle Paul 
that Satan was behind his great agony, as also Satan is oftentimes behind, or many times is behind, the afflictions that we experience as well. And this is a frightening reality, if you really believe in the reality of the devil. It's a very frightening consideration because as we think of who the devil is, we are overcome by the fact that Satan is far more cunning than we are wise. And Satan is far more mightier than we are strong. And so we might despair. We might be greatly discouraged. However, we also have to remember that although Satan might be stronger than ourselves, Satan is not an equal to God. He does not act outside the bounds and the limitations that the Lord our God has set for him. That's to say that Satan does not do as he wishes, but only as he is permitted. We see this in the life of Job, the servant of God. As it was granted to him to act against his servant Job. He could not do as he willed, but only as God had permitted. And even the evil actions of Satan were overruled. And they were guided by the Lord to fulfill his good purposes for Job. For the devil can never act independently from God. And what this means is that wherever Satan is at work for evil, we know that God is at work for good. And so we are told that it was the work of Satan to tempt Jesus in the wilderness. And yet who was it but the not, not the Spirit of the Lord who drove the Lord Jesus in the wilderness to be tempted? Was it not Satan who filled the heart of Judas to betray the Lord? And yet was it not the very purpose of God according to to his will for good, for grace? Was it not Satan who stirred up the Jews and the Gentiles against the Lord Jesus to crucify him? And are we not told in the book of Acts that all these things took place according to the foreordination of Almighty God? The point I'm making is this, is that yes, this thorn was a messenger of Satan but it was given to Paul by the Lord himself. It was given to the Lord, it was given to Paul by the Lord himself. And it was not given to him or permitted for the purposes that Satan had, which was to destroy. But it was allowed for God's purposes to sanctify, to grow, to conform to the image of Jesus Christ. As Matthew Henry put it, it pleases the Lord to use Satan's poison to be medicine to the saints. It pleases the Lord to use Satan's poison to be medicine to the saints. Think about one who's battling cancer, who has cancer, and they're battling cancer. What do we do? We give them chemotherapy oftentimes. And chemotherapy is an introduction of a poison into the body. That's deadly stuff. It's an introduction of a poison into the body, but in the right hands and for the right purposes, it's used to be healing to the body. And likewise, the surgical hands of the Lord, so to speak, use the thorn in Paul's flesh for the purposes of sanctification, for the purpose of growth, 
And this is the Lord's purpose in our afflictions as well. They are to refine us, but as through fire. And since this is the case, we have to be ready. We have to be willing to bear up under affliction if it would be the Lord's will that we be afflicted. And we can do this knowing that the purposes and intentions of our Father in heaven are only good for his children. And I see that many of you are parents here in this room, so you know what that's like. You know what it's like to have a sick child who needs to go to a doctor to get a shot, who needs to take to the doctor for medicine or maybe for a surgery, and you know this is going to be painful. This isn't going to be a good experience. We're not having fun at the doctor's office today. We know this. But we still bring our child because we know it is for their good. It will be good to them. It will be for their well-being. And you see this thorn that was causing the Apostle Paul such great pain and severe agony. This wasn't any kind of light affliction. This was no small affliction. This is not as if the Apostle Paul woke up in the middle of the night Uh, stumbling through his kitchen and stubs his toe. No. This kind of sorrow is a deep sorrow within his soul. A deep, unrelentless pain and sorrow from which he could not see any relief. Have you ever suffered like that? Have you ever experienced affliction like that? Where there's no relief in sight. And the intensity of Paul's cries are conveyed to us in the words, pleaded. He pleaded with the Lord. This is a synonym that's used, there's a synonym to this word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. It's used in the Psalms when David cries out, oh God, hear me, rescue me, deliver me. And here it's used, Paul pleaded. He cried out to God. He's intense desperation, Lord, help me. And in the midst of the affliction, the apostle cries out to the Lord in prayer. And in doing so, he is teaching us that in our afflictions, we are to pray. In our afflictions, we are to cry out to our Father in heaven. We are to pray. In times of distress, in times of difficulty, these are the times we most must be upon our knees in prayer. And what did Paul pray? He prayed that the affliction might be removed from him. And in so doing, Paul is teaching us that it is right, that it's fitting, that it's okay in times of hurt, to pray that we might have the affliction removed. This is a great encouragement to the people of God. Because sometimes we might be led to believe that we have to, you know, put on this kind of facade. We have to put on a mask. We have to pretend we're not hurt. We have to pretend as if we're not afflicted. We have to pretend as if everything's okay when it's not all okay. But you see, Paul here teaches us that we can pray to God. Oh, Lord God, relieve me from this affliction. Remove this this thorn from my flesh. We don't have to put on a false sense of piety. We don't have to pretend that we're not hurt. We can cry out, Lord, I'm broken. 
Lord, help me. Lord, heal me. Lord, deliver me. Lord, help me as these overwhelming billows roll over me. We not only learn of Paul's intensity in prayer, we also learn of Paul's earnestness in prayer. He doesn't just pray once. He doesn't just pray twice. He prays three times. And even this is most likely not to be taken in the most strict and literal sense, as if Paul prayed once, twice, third, and then he said, okay, that's enough. It's meant to communicate to us that Paul was one who gave himself to frequent and regular prayer. Have you ever been in such a situation? Have you ever experienced such a trial? That you went to your knees daily, maybe hourly, pleading over, over, and over again. This language of Paul pleading once, twice, three times is reminiscent of another person in Scripture, Paul's Lord. As Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, according to Luke, we're told that Jesus cried out to the Lord not once, not twice, but three times. He said, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful even to death. And so Jesus prayed, not once, not twice, but three times, that the cup of God's wrath might be removed from him. But the Lord did not remove the cup, though he did answer his prayer. And you see, the Lord Jesus answered Paul's prayer as well. But he did not do so as Paul had wished. But the Lord had greater purposes for Paul. The Lord had a greater interest for Paul, though Paul himself might not have understood. And this leads us to our second point, an answer from heaven. Christ responds to Paul's plea in verse 9. He says, And he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. The Lord Jesus answered Paul's prayer not by taking away the suffering, but by bestowing upon him the grace necessary to endure the affliction. And so we need to, not, we, we need to be reminded, we, we must not think that when we cry out to God and he answers not by removing the affliction, that we must not think that he's forgotten us. We must not think that he's deaf as if he doesn't hear us. We must not think that he's not interested in us. But we have to remember that when he doesn't remove the affliction, he is not closing his ears. He is answered. He's just not answered as you wished. He's answered in supplying his grace. If it would have been best for the Apostle Paul that the affliction would be removed, God would have done so. The Lord would have done so. Because the Lord God will not allow his saints, his holy ones, his loved ones, to go through suffering not for one second more than what he's ordained for their good. For their good to teach them and to reveal to them something more of the riches of his grace in Jesus Christ. And so it's often the case that the removal of our afflictions and 
and trials would not be to our advantage. But have you ever considered that in your prayer? As you cry out to the Lord, Lord, remove this from me. Remove this distress. Remove this trial. Remove this difficulty. And the Lord isn't answering. Has it dawned on you that maybe it's God's purpose that you continue in the affliction? And that it's not actually best for you to be removed from it. It is good for you to be afflicted. Because God is wiser than we are. He'd remove it from us if it was best. And so the all-wise God who knows better than we allows our afflictions to persist for a time and maybe even throughout all of our life that his work might be complete in us, that he might have his work done in us, that we might learn more about dying to self, that we might learn more of dependence on Jesus Christ. So Jesus is saying to Paul, Paul, you don't need the thorn removed. You see, Paul, you don't need the thorn removed because all you need is me. That's all you need. Paul, you don't need the removal of the affliction because you already have me. All you need is Christ. All you need is his grace because Christ is sufficient to supply us with everything we need in our suffering. If we are suffering want, then Christ is our supply. If we have experienced pain, then Jesus is our comfort. If we are being afflicted or assaulted, then Jesus is our shield and defender. The point is that there is no trial, no difficulty that you could possibly experience in this life in which the grace of Jesus Christ will not prove enough. The grace of Jesus Christ is all-sufficient. He supplies to his saints all that we need. Out of the abundance, out of the overflowing abundance of his grace, of his mercy. You see, the grace of Christ is not only just enough to regenerate us and bring us to life, to justify us, to declare us right with God, to sanctify us, to prepare us to heaven, to glorify us. But the grace of Jesus Christ is enough to sustain us, to protect us, to strengthen us, to comfort us, to cheer us on our way in the midst of affliction. He gives to us his grace according to each believer's need. And what a wonderful thought that Jesus Christ gives tailor-fitted grace. He gives grace just as you need. He does not give you grace as you need. He gives you grace just as you need, and he gives you grace just as you need. He gives to each one according to their need, daily, hourly, minute by minute. He does not withhold his grace from his people, but he gives liberally. He gives freely to firm up our faith, to strengthen his loved ones for whom he gave his life. And you see, Christ responds in this way for the purpose of strengthening our faith. This is sometimes why the affliction is not removed, so that faith might increase, that faith might be strengthened, that you might learn to take hold of Jesus Christ in the midst of affliction 
to draw near to him in the midst of the sufferings that we might find in Christ an ample supply of grace to meet our need. You see, the Lord often uses suffering and affliction for this purpose of refining faith. And this is what Peter says. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, or since it is necessary, that you've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see, he does this so that we might be able to say with Job, though he slay me, yet I'll trust him. For the Lord removes... In the midst of affliction, as he supplies us with grace, he removes the dross of self-trust. He removes the dross of self-sufficiency. He removes the dross of our pride in the midst of our weaknesses and afflictions. As the Lord said, For my strength is made perfect in weakness. That's to say, Paul, this thorn was given to you to reveal something about you. This thorn was given to you to reveal your weakness, to show you just how little you are, how powerless you are, how inadequate you are in and of yourself. You see, the thorns that we bear are meant by God to humble us, to reveal to us our weakness that we might experience more of the riches of the grace of Jesus Christ. And this is what it means that his strength is made perfect in weakness, that it manifests his glory and power. Our weakness is an opportunity for the glory of Christ to shine. The Lord manifests his power in the midst of the weakness of his servants. As the Puritan Joseph Carl said, When we rest with our weaknesses upon Christ, the power of Christ rests upon us. But you see, we are not going to be vessels. We are not going to be vessels ready, equipped to experience the grace of Jesus Christ in all its power and all its glory if we puff ourselves up with vain imaginations of who we are. For the Lord gives grace to the humble but he resists the proud. If we think that we're self-sufficient, we think we're capable in ourselves, if we think ourselves righteous, if we think ourselves praiseworthy, then we are not ready to experience the power of Jesus Christ, the sufficient grace of Jesus Christ. And yet this is the mindset of the world. This is the mindset of the world. This is what is encouraged among men and women in this world to advance their careers, display a self-assured disposition. This is what the world esteems. You're self-sufficient. You're independent. You're strong. But funny enough, paradoxically enough, in the Christian life, in the Christian faith, we're not strong by being strong. We're strong by being weak. It is precisely when we see ourselves as base, as low, it's then and there 
that we're able to see the abundant grace of Jesus Christ, the majesty of Christ, the glory of Jesus Christ. But you know, there might be someone here who's saying to themselves, see, but you don't understand me. You don't understand my problem. My problem is is that I already think very low of myself. I already don't think very highly of myself. I don't esteem myself much of anything. And then my exhortation to you this morning then is, good, you're a perfect candidate to flee to Christ. You're a perfect candidate to flee to Christ because when you see that nothing good resides in you and you can see that all that you have is lack and want and need, then you're able to see that all that you need is supplied in Jesus Christ. But if you say to yourself this morning, I think of myself very low. I think of myself very little but you have not fleed to Christ, then you have yet to come and experience how weak you really are. You have yet to come to a knowledge of the true nature of your weakness. We can't say, oh, I'm weak, I'm low, but won't flee to Christ. Because in not fleeing to Christ, we're saying, I'm weak, I'm low, I'm little, but I'm strong enough. For this. But you see, as Christians, we want to know more of our lack. We want to know more of our dependence. We want, more, we want to know more of our insufficiency. We want to know more of our inadequacy. Because when we know more of our weakness and frailty, then we're ready to see more of the beauty of Christ. We have to be those who say with John the Baptist... I must decrease that Christ might increase. But this is contrary, not just to the world, but this is contrary to many evangelical theologies of the day that encourage people to believe in yourselves. You're strong, you're able, you're powerful. But that's not what Jesus says. Jesus says you're weak. Jesus says, apart from me, you're nothing. You can do nothing. And therefore, he says, trust in me. Be confident in me. For I am strong, I am powerful, I am able. You see, that's what Paul exhorts the saints to in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. What does he say? Be strong in yourself? No. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength or power of his might. The all-sufficient grace of Christ will strengthen us and give to us the power that we need in our weakness. And further, the Lord God will give us peace concerning this condition, this affliction, this situation that we're experiencing, because he'll cause our hearts by his Holy Spirit to be content even in hardships. Because he stills our spirit. He calms our hearts of worry. He sends us the Holy Spirit to minister into our hearts and minds. To make known to us his gracious presence. That we might know that the Lord is near. That he's not abandoned us. He's not forsaken us. He will not leave us orphans. But he comes to us in power from on high. As Paul said in Romans Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you might abound in hope 
by the power of the Holy Spirit. You see, the Spirit applies the grace of Christ to us when he stirs up in our hearts joy, peace, contentment in the midst of afflictions. You know, none of us can count it all joy, as James tells us, in the midst of trials and afflictions unless the Spirit of God has convinced us in mind and heart of the sufficiency of Jesus Christ for our needs. The Lord will send us these thorns in the flesh to expose our infirmities, to, info, to expose our weakness, to manifest to us clearly and starkly that apart from him we really can do nothing. And by the way, nothing is not a little something. It's nothing. We have no righteousness, no works with which to impress him. We have no skills, no abilities that are innate. But all that we have and all that we are, we are and have by grace and by grace alone. You see, in this, this, this notion, that idea led Paul to realize that there was nothing in which he could boast save his weaknesses. And this is what we're led to. And lastly, thirdly, we come to point three in our message, a resolve to glorify Christ. Notice in verse 9, he says this, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ might rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. See, the apostle was happy. He was happy to boast in his weakness, to boast of his lack, to boast of his insufficiency, so that it might bring more glory to Christ, that it might be an opportunity to show the magnificence of Jesus Christ. And we're told that in this situation, in this context, that the grace of Christ will dwell or rest upon us in our suffering. This is similar to what the Apostle Peter says in his first epistle. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. This is the language of the Old Testament tabernacle. This is the language that God is the one who dwells with his people. He makes his gracious presence known. And that's the picture that we're supposed to derive from this, that when we are weak, Christ comes and he dwells with us. He tabernacles with us so that he might give to us in his dwelling the necessary grace in the midst of our afflictions. His dwelling with us secures our protection from becoming overwhelmed in the midst of suffering. Paul says, Most gladly I will boast in my infirmities. He's not ashamed of his weaknesses. He doesn't try to hide them. He doesn't try to deny them. He doesn't do what most of us did on job applications when we were teenagers. What are your greatest weaknesses? I pay too close attention to detail. Uh, I, I put in too many hours. I work too hard. You know, because we were uncomfortable that we're weak. We're unwilling to acknowledge that we're weak. 
But you see, Paul doesn't try to explain them away. He doesn't excuse them. He doesn't say, well, you have to understand what the circumstances were. And if the circumstances were a little different, then the outcome would have been a little different. No, Paul doesn't do that. So often when we're unwilling to acknowledge our weaknesses and infirmities, this is a clear sign of pride within us. When we're unwilling and unable to acknowledge that we as men have limitations and that we are feeble. But you see, Paul could say this because he loved Christ more than he loved his own life. Paul loved Christ more than he loved himself. He esteemed Christ greater than he esteemed himself. And you see, this is where we have to come to as a people. We have to love Christ more than our own lives. We have to esteem his praise, his glory, as more significant than ourselves. We have to not be people pleasers and those who are out looking for a pat on the back, but seeking to bring glory and honor to Jesus Christ. And to so prize, to so esteem his presence among us, that if it means that we have to suffer, we would gladly suffer. If that means that he will be near us. If that means that he'll be exalted. If that means that he'll be glorified. You see, that's where Paul was. That's why he says, I take joy in this. Paul, he even takes it a step further. We might think of this man crazy. He says, I take pleasure in infirmities. What are you talking about, Paul? We know of something of Paul's infirmities, don't we? Beaten with 39 lashes. 39 lashes leave a man close to dead in the ancient world. Paul says, I endured that a number of times. Shipwreck. You have your own people who are working with you in the ministry abandon you people out seeking your life. And he says, you know what? I take pleasure in these things. Why? Because he loved being beat on? No. He doesn't say, I take pleasure in these for the calamities or the persecutions or the needs themselves. But he says, I take pleasure in them because it is the opportunity for the glory of Christ to manifest itself in sustaining me with grace in the midst of my afflictions. And he says, if this is what will come of my afflictions, then I take joy in them. His delight, you see, Paul's delight was a spiritual delight that by faith saw beyond the trial itself and had in view the riches of Christ's grace that he was receiving in the midst of afflictions. Have you gone through such a trial before? I'm sure if you're a believer who's been a believer for any portion of time, you can say this, that you have gone through a trial in which when you were going through it, it was intense, There were sleepless nights, tears rolling down your face as you pleaded to God for help, great distress, inner turmoil, sickness of heart. But when the Lord finally brought you through it, you looked back and you said, Lord God, I'm thankful that you brought that in my life. Because if it had not been for that trial, I would not have known the grace of Jesus in the way that I came to experience it. And you see, this is what was the case for Paul. 
He says, Lord, if I had not experienced the sufferings that you have put me through, then I would not come to have communion with Jesus Christ in the way that I'm experiencing it. And I'm reminded of a question that was raised to uh, Johnny Erickson Tadai at a Ligonier conference. She was a woman who was left a quadriplegic after diving into the Chesapeake Bay, and she suffered greatly on account of this. This is great and difficult providence. Suffering on beyond suffering. And during this conference, she was asked, now that you know all that you've gone through and all that would have come from the jump, would you still jump? And she said, you know what? I've thought about this actually quite frequently. And the answer she gave was one that would shock most of us, but she said, I've thought about it, and I firmly believe that I would. Jump all over again. Because she said it was in the midst of, of her lows, it was in the midst of her sorrows, in the midst of her weaknesses, that she came to see something that she would not have otherwise, something greater than her weakness. She saw the power, she saw the glory, she saw the beauty, she saw the grace manifested in her Savior Jesus Christ in a very peculiar and special way that she wouldn't have known otherwise. And this is what Paul learned. And this is why he could gladly boast in his weaknesses and why he could be content with his sufferings. And that's why he could say, for when I am weak, then I'm strong. You see, it's when we come to see ourselves as empty that we're ready to be made full. It's when we come to see ourselves as destitute of righteousness. I have no righteousness. It's then and there that we're ready to receive the righteousness of Christ by faith. It's when we see ourselves as nothing. It's then and there that we're ready to see Christ as our everything. And doubtless, if we're Christians, if we're believers, if we're His, the Lord God will send us thorns in the flesh. You will experience hardship. You will experience suffering. And these sufferings and hardships will sometimes not be removed. Not in a short time and maybe not in a lifetime. But whatever they might be, we are called to fix our eyes on Jesus Christ. We're called to fix our eyes upon the Savior from heaven who still says to men today, as he said to Paul then, my grace is sufficient for you. You see, and so we need to trust in the Lord's good purposes to sanctify us and conform us to the image of his Son. We have to remember that all of Satan's poison is but medicine to God's saints. We must humble ourselves before God that we might know more of our weakness. And in knowing more of our weakness, we'll experience more of the riches of the grace of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we ask that you would take your word, which is the bread of life, and feed your people. Apply it to our hearts, apply it to our minds, apply it to our lives, O Lord God. May we not walk out of here unchanged by the word of God, but may it 
take root in our hearts and bear fruit a hundredfold for your glory and for your namesake. For we ask it in the name of our Savior. Amen.